Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome back to The Game Podcast. Uh, I am Hugh Wizencroft once again on location in Doha in one of the lavish times <laughs> apartments uh, alongside Tom Roddy, Matt Lawton and Owen Slot. Um, talking about, I think, the tournament so far, we, of course, will look ahead to the uh, quarterfinals as well. And we'll be discussing what this World Cup means in the grand scheme of where football is and where it's going. But, um, gentlemen, it's good to catch up. Tell me, how's the tournament been so far for you? Can we just nail this grandiose apartment nonsense? <laughs> just so no one, just so everyone knows that's ironic. It was deeply ironic. Yeah, it was. But thanks for that, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> we have to establish that early. So, so you're saying you're not enjoying the apartment side of things? Depends who you live with, really. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Who are you staying with? Well, I have to live with Mark Aspland. And there are some people who are known to iron in the nude. <laughs> oh, my God, who? Has he not done it at your house, mate? <laughs> I've only just moved in. <laughs> Name, oh, oh. Naming no names, yeah. naming no names. Matt, how have you found things? Yeah, no, it's been... Look, I was here in 2019, so I knew... I was here for the World Athletics. So I knew it would be logistically very easy compared to charging all over Russia four years mm. ago. You know, I knew from, in that, from that perspective it would be quite a pleasurable experience, but it is different and there are obvious challenges to it all that, you know, from, from the, the most stark differences is, is the way we've covered it really, is the stories that we've written, the issues that we've been focused on. That's been, been very different, it's been quite unique. And the tension that's created, not just with the hosts, but with FIFA. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's been probably the most interesting World Cup to cover. And then this is my seventh one. Uh, and I found it, yeah, for, from a from a journalistic perspective, the most challenging, but the most interesting. More details. Have you been tracked by FIFA? Has there been a black SUV following in the streets whenever you get in a taxi? Not quite. Um, but but it's been yeah. The, the, as I say, I think I think tension is the best word. And and I think to um, you know going back to that Infantino press conference, which was you know, misguided to say the least, his, his whole sort of um, angle of attack, trying to turn it on the Western media, you know, how dare they, how dare they bring up these issues? How dare they talk about human rights, basically accusing the West of being hypocrites. Um, I thought it was misguided, but it, it kind of set the tone. 
you know, we, we had already been writing a lot about this stuff. We'd already been writing about the rights of migrant workers and the abuses and, and, and you know, as I say, back in 2019, I, I sat with uh, Al Thawadi, you know, the, the head of the Supreme Committee and got into those issues. And back in 2019, they made certain assurances that they, three years later, they haven't delivered on. So it's been interesting from that perspective, and but important. There's an element of embarrassment, I actually feel, in the fact I've been here nearly a month now, and the inevitable question when you get home is what, what was it like? What was what's Qatar like? And actually, kind of covering England, I've been in a bit more of a cycle of going down to their training base every day, which is a little bit takes you back to being a student sitting exams in a in a sports hall because mm. that's that's what it essentially is. Mm -hmm. You've been there, here, yeah, yeah. So you know what it's you know what it's like. But you know, I've been here nearly a month, and actually, I don't think I've spoken to one Qatari so far and that's a strange experience and that's partly my fault i mean it'd be quite interesting actually for owen to talk about the opening game and what what owen did that that night because that was really interesting piece but when i first arrived you were getting ubers around even though as matt said the the metro system here is is brilliant but i was getting some ubers around and you would ask the migrant workers who were driving a lot of them are from Sri Lanka and you would ask them what they thought of the World Cup and there was a element of unease around the way in which they sort of responded every it felt like people were treading on eggshells around that subject you know I've, I've been a believer that it is the World Cup it should be it should take place all around the world but it is quite uncomfortable at times a lot of times the way that you are treated by the migrant workers because even around the the local supermarkets and around the stadiums just around the whole city where it it, it does i read a piece recently which compared it to feeling like what the deep south would have been like and actually that's it, it, it made me feel uncomfortable. It was quite unsettling because that is that is how it does feel at times. That's a really good analogy to compare it to the deep south like that. The migrant workers have been so friendly, and and you just can't help but warm to them. Uh, they they love to chat to you and that. But at the same time, you know that they're earning probably a pound an hour or a pound fifty an hour, or in some cases I've I've read less, and. Also, at the same time, we're in the nation where the, the, the civilian population have the highest per capita earning a year of anywhere, anywhere in the world. And that differentiation is something that you can, you can wander around for a week and forget about it because the, 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 this is the thing, isn't it? The football's been so incredibly amazing um, that you can, you can just forget it. But at the same time, it's in your face every every day. I saw that comparison too. I know there are a lot of people uncomfortable with comparing. I know certain people thought the Deep South reference was to a certain period of time that was maybe post-slavery, the early stages of, um, I guess, the economic situation in the Deep South where people who had been part of the transatlantic slave trade were then moving into paying I use an in inverted commas, their workers, rather than the period before that, where I don't think we're saying that this is exactly comparable with people 
being taken from Africa on boats to be slaves. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, and lots of the, um, I guess the activist groups would say that this is a modern day slavery, you know, very much so. And just on the, you've seen the videos of the teams going back to the hotels after wins and the confetti thrown in the air and Jack Grealish dancing around and and they enjoy it and they're, they're, you understand why they've enjoyed it, but at the same, I actually felt quite uncomfortable seeing that because I don't think it didn't feel authentic, and a lot of this World Cup doesn't feel authentic. You, yeah. know, you go to the stadiums, and there was especially the last game, England Senegal, and you had this brilliant. There wasn't lots of Senegal fans there, but the ones who were there, they were dancing and singing and had the drums out and this brilliant glow of colour. And they were drowned out by the DJ. And it's oh, not just FIFA's I fault. I can't stand it. UEFA do it as well. I, they I did it, it during Euro 2020. Yeah. But they're so desperate to create this brilliant atmosphere that, that appears like an excellent World Cup at home that it actually makes it inauthentic. Yeah, yeah, what, what's, wrong, what's wrong with some Arabic music or, or something that, that places us in the part of the world that we're at rather than the idea is that to make this a, a really groovy modern World Cup, it's got to feel Western. That's, yeah. that, I mean, that's, the music is one of the many things that make, makes, makes me think that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a big, I don't know if it's Guns N' Roses, there's a big rock song that comes on at one point and the, the lights start flashing and you get this sort of lightning imagery around the stadium. But at three Argentina games, where they're making so much noise from an hour, an hour and a half before kickoff, you really want to scream at someone from FIFA. You don't need the music before this game. The sound is incredible. The fans are bouncing, the drums are going. They didn't really get that message. And just on the Senegal fans, I mean, it was probably 2,000, 3,000. Their ability to keep the noise inside the stadium going on their own has been remarkable. One of the it was, the best things about it, the tournament. It was, it was brilliant. But what I think has been a consistent theme has been the control that they're trying to exert the whole time. The fact of the matter, I was talking to a gay fan who's been here and the fact of the matter is after having their their flag, their rainbow flag yeah. taken off them, they then passed through security and there, there, there was a hut handing out flags in the colours of the two teams for free. So the whole idea with that is they're trying to control the visual image, you know, what the, the, the image that's broadcast to the world, what people see. That's been the situation the whole way through. We've never had a World Cup where, for instance, and I think it was a piece in the New York Times, where, and I noticed them as, as you probably did, Slotty, at that first, first game, that opening game, was the fact that the Qatar, there were the Qatari fans that were sat there Pretty, pretty emotionless, really. Very conservative, didn't get excited uh, at sort of key moments in the game. But sat alongside them was this group of three, 4,000 fans in Qatari colours. But it turns out they're all, they're all Lebanese. And they're a bunch of kids from, you know, Lebanese kids who have been paid to be here to create this noise. And they actually had these four guys stood on the wall at the front of the stadium who, who were almost directing them like an orchestra. And that's really false and really disturbing. The same has been true of uh, of a group of Saudi fans. Apparently, there are five thousand. There were five thousand Saudi fans here, all of whom have been paid to be here to make that noise, to create that atmosphere. And as I say, that's something I've never seen before in a yeah, World Cup. Yeah, yeah. No, that saddens me because the Saudi fans have been my favourites. I mean that genuinely. I went to been to two of their games, the Argentina game and the, and the Mexico game, and they were just 
absolutely unbelievable. Oh, you get what you pay for. Well, yeah. <laughs> they earn their money, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It has been one of the more intriguing things. I did the Wales games in the group stage and I noticed as, it was strange at full time suddenly you saw a section that was just Wales flags everywhere and people going ballistic regardless of the result as well which made it even more strange because it was like if you were Wales fans I'm not sure you'd be as delighted at the final whistle <laughs> as the red wall at the other end of the stadium but there you go like it has been one of the more peculiar things one of the funniest stories was one that Matt wrote about the uh, about the, the stadium attendances where you go into the stadium and there, every game there are quite a lot of em empty seats but after a while the, the published attendances start are going above the official capacity yeah. of the stadium. <laughs> this is like the, the ultimate the ultimate acknowledgement that you can't believe what you see. Well, they literally it was it was hilarious. We, we raised this with people at FIFA at the media centre and said, "How come your attendances are higher than the stated capacities of the stadiums?" And in some cases, you're talking seven or eight thousand above. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And about two hours later all the attendances changed on the website. Yeah. The capacities? Yeah, it's all the, sorry, all the capacities changed. <laughs> and it was, it was like, I think I might have triggered that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how does this compare to the other six that you've been to in terms of the way that the host nation wants it to appear as a success? I was never aware of any kind of sort of coercive control, if you like, mm. in any of the ones prior to that. Just, just wasn't, you know, it just, it just, it wasn't there. So in that respect, no, it, it's been completely different. It's, it's been, been like nothing I've ever seen. I didn't cover the Olympic Games in in Beijing. Uh, so you probably did slot it. Both of them. Um, so maybe you've got a. So it sounds like a name drop. Maybe you've got I can, a. I couldn't uh, say I've been to seventeen World Cups like that. <laughs> but no, but maybe, maybe you've seen this before. I haven't. It, it, it's been very, very strange. Well, I was at the Winter Olympics at the start of the year, and and so I, I can relate that to what what you were allowed to see and what you weren't allowed to see, and the show that they put on trying to persuade you what to believe in that. But um, even that was was sorry. This this World Cup is on a completely different level, absolutely different level. The way they tried to manage the the thought processes that the the, the, Im, the Im, image that people take away with them. Well, what do we make of the I guess Qatari claims that? There's European discrimination, racism when it comes to the difference between the World Cup in Russia and how they feel it's being covered in Qatar. You know, I mean, it's not just the Qataris, obviously, it's the likes of Infantino pointing the finger as, as well. Any basis to that, in your opinion? Well, I, I can tell you from a from a gay rights perspective that, talk, you know, talking to talking to people in that community that in Russia while there were similar concerns going into that World Cup, it was much more relaxed. Gay fans who went to Russia openly met other the people from that from the gay community in Russia. It was it was it was far less intimidating. So 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 for a start that no, I think people are absolutely right to say we have our own issues, we have our own problems at home. Um, of course. But I think there's a willingness more to evolve and the fact of the matter is i don't think you know the world cup was awarded to qatar in 2010 and there has been no effort made to change evolve address any of these issues as i say when i sat with hassan al thawadi back in 2019 i was given assurances as were the other journalists there that there would be a real 
effort to make people feel welcome. The fact of the matter is people turned up, they had their flags confiscated, they had their hats confiscated. Yeah. They were they were they were made to feel that they that they couldn't be themselves, that they couldn't express themselves. Whatever FIFA assurances were given, and even in that first week that I arrived, I met the the head of FIFA fan and you know fan engagement uh, at the fan park. And she said, no, everyone will be able to come here and express themselves. Everyone will be able to be themselves. They will be able to show affection towards their partners openly. It's not been the case. It's been an interesting experience in the culture. I still don't understand what they think the power of that flag is. Like, I don't, th- I don't know what they think the public reaction would be if people had brought the rainbow flags into the stadium. That's one thing I find weird because I think it was almost unnecessary. It just creates a story that wasn't needed. I mean, what did they, I don't know what they thought the Qatari public's reaction would be, you know, change their partners to a different gender had they witnessed these flags and there weren't going to be that many of them in stadia. And it's interesting because I think some people's reaction is to feel like they're a political statement possibly, but there's plenty of Palestinian flags and there's absolutely no issue with that. So it's not that they really care that you're making a political statement per se, regardless of what you think about that situation. But I think it is, you know, this LGBT thing has become maybe in, in the Qatari leadership's eyes something much bigger than I think we would see it as. I mean, that's obvious, but it, I find it very strange. I think it's. I think what it shows is it, it's an absolute red line for them. It, there is a complete intolerance. It means they don't want. They don't. They don't want to even to even have you know a conception have, of it. Have, yeah. have any visibility of yeah, it yeah. and and it and it's actually even though it's very different the same goes for alcohol they basically said two days before you know what no we're not having alcohol being sold at, at, at a stadium in particular we were talking about it because we were we were near education city and we were saying that in particular because of what the whole education city complex is supposed to represent mm absolutely no chance that they were going to let beer be sold at the Education City Stadium. And I just think they are, in certain certain parts of their culture, they simply will not tolerate it. And I think that's what that has demonstrated. One, one of the things that I found really interesting, this whole experience has been such a cultural kind of head-spinning um, education. And, and, and we, we're talking about, about these things, LGBT, uh, etc. So you're not allowed a rainbow flag, but every day at this World Cup, there are images of liberated women from around the world here in in the stadium on, on the streets, not 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 being covered up, looking like modern women. For, for me, one of the most powerful uh, images of the whole of the World Cup was the um, the female referee refereeing team. You know, show, showing that that um, gender should be equal, showing that, that women can be powerful, that they can, and, and that, is, that is totally against the, um, the national culture here, isn't it? But did they not think about that or is that, was that just something that they couldn't control? You know, what, where do they decide we're, you know, we're not gonna have alcohol, but we, we can have liberated women and it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, their response I think would be to the, that many of the women here are liberated, have voices of power. I think I'm just saying that that is, I think, would be their response, even though the culture is to, to dress differently, behave differently in public. I think they would feel like the two things actually do compute and, and a modern woman, I, I imagine you mean sort of Western, ideas of a modern woman rather than Middle Eastern ideas of a modern woman. But I think their argument would be, well, you know, we've got successful women here who are, who are 
contributing in a similar way to women anywhere else. I, I just, I, they can say that, but I could just can't stomach even yeah. that. I went to a Qatari house, as Thomas mentioned at the start, I went to a Qatari house to watch the opening game and the women weren't allowed to watch it with the men. They, they, they were elsewhere. They, the, the, the men showed me this magnificent family tree on the wall, which, um, which you know, was amazing, sort of going back generations. They showed me um, where they were. This is my brother, this is my brother, this is my other brother. And I said, where are your sisters on the family tree? And they said, oh, we haven't got any women on this family tree. There's another family tree somewhere else where we put the women on. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys what you think the World Cup, this World Cup means Qatar 2022 as a moment in time and for football as a whole going forward. What does this mean? Is it a change? Is it a moment that we will look back on in, you know, 50 years time and say that was the moment that football changed in one direction or another, Tom? Yes. Yeah, it feels like, a, a, I was going to say dipping your toe in, but it feels like we jumped straight into the deep end um, rather than dipping your toe in. The strange thing is that we've got the possibility of the Saudi Arabia World Cup, the joint Saudi Arabia World Cup in 2030. But what it also means, and of course it's easy, it's actually quite easy to forget about it out here, but the, the logistics of having a Winter World Cup are We've spoken about loads on the podcast in the lead up to coming out here, but it, it's been ridiculous for for leagues and managers have spoken about it. And, and of course, we come final on the 18th of December, you go straight back, you've got Carabao Cup games on the 19th, 24 hours after. Premier League returns on Boxing Day. The, the logistics of having a Winter World Cup are totally uncomfortable and kind of improper really for for all the leagues. Like I said before, I do, I do think it's right that the World Cup should go should go around the world. It's just the locations they're held and like the, the beer ban, it didn't bother me out here. The timing was poor, but it didn't bother me because there are elements of things that we should respect and and the the dry nature of this country is, is fine with me. So that actually, that element of that didn't bother me at all. Others obviously do. What do you guys think? What does Qatar 2022 mean? What will it mean when we look back, do you think? Look, I think it's it's been good in the sense that there's been a slight power shift, that the African teams are proving more successful at this World Cup, that uh, Arab teams have done well. But I think it also will put more pressure on FIFA to make sure that their choice of where a, where a World Cup is held is appropriate. Um, I think it will hopefully provide a guarantee that, that there is a change in the criteria for where a, a World Cup should be hosted. Because the fact of the matter is, certain groups of people have not been made to feel welcome here. And that has that has to be part of the criteria going forward because it isn't right. It isn't right that people have had to adapt their behaviours, have been made to feel afraid. That can't be something that's allowed to be repeated. There's an argument, though, that they would say, well, you know, we're uncomfortable having to go to a football stadium where 
pints of alcohol are being thrown around, you know, and we've had to do that in however many World Cups gone by. So we adjust to a, a different culture if we want to visit a World Cup and you would have to do the same in a different part of the world. Well, I, yeah. So I just say, I think the interesting thing about this is, is that we're having to confront and think about how the traditional West, which has been sort of the host of most big events, um, how, how do we interact with with the Muslim world, you know, we can't just say we, we have to have it all our own way, which is kind of what you're suggesting. We're not we're not right, and uh, it's not that we're right and, and and they're wrong. But 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 this has in many ways been a PR disaster. This World Cup because we've been talking about problems so much. But we but but then again, we can't just say oh we're not going to take a World Cup or Olympics to a Muslim country again because that. that we have to we have to interface. The world has to develop like that. And and the other thing is that this part of the world is the wealthiest part of the world at the moment, and it costs a hell of a lot to put on one of these things. And there's not a lot of Western hands going up to stage Olympics, for instance. Yeah. But what you're touching on there, Hugh, is actually one of the positives, um, because actually the alcohol ban has a lot of people are saying it. Is, has been one of the good things about this World Cup. And I think that will be food for thought going forward. Should FIFA look at actually banning alcohol at stadiums in future tournaments? Because it's made for a much more positive experience for a lot of fans. Um, you know, I was talking to Matt Dickinson about this earlier in the tournament, and he was bemoaning the fact that alcohol sales at the stadium have been implemented because when he goes to QPR as a season ticket holder, he quite likes to have a couple of beers with his mates, but he doesn't necessarily represent the fans that that becomes a problem for, that we saw at the European Championships last year. At the first England game, I spent a couple of hours outside the metro station just speaking to England fans arriving. And a lot of the women I spoke to, you know, women England fans, just thought it was so much better because they, you know, they weren't having to endure the kind of, kind of boorish behaviour that sometimes exists at football matches. So I do think that is something that should be revisited. I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, by the way, but, I, but I'm immediately thinking, is it just the English football fans that are terrible with beer? No. And, and the fact of the matter is uh, the, 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 the one serious... Um, incident of trouble that has occurred at this tournament involved Argentina and Mexico fans. So no, it's it's not exclusive, but you have to say that in the sort of history of hooligan behaviour in football, England yeah. is right up there. Are the fans who caused that behaviour here as well? I don't think a lot of them are, no, because I think that is also a contributing factor to to the fact that we've got through four games so far without a single arrest of an English or Welsh fan. I was talking to the, the most senior British police officer who's out here and he was saying he thinks you've got probably got to go back to Spain in 82, perhaps even Mexico in 70 when that's happened before. Now, the fact, you know, in fairness to England fans, there are only three arrests in Russia. Fans were pretty well behaved there. Again, I think because of the... And this is not to say because people are affluent, more affluent, they behave better. But I just think it's a slightly different um, group that have come. We will see more this weekend. I think we could see up to 15,000 England fans uh, uh, for the France game. So perhaps that means there's more potential. But I just think the fact that these stadiums are dry is certainly that that's the view of the police is that 
dry stadiums is, is, is a major factor in better behaviour. So have we seen basically a power shift here in Qatar 2022? More tournaments in the regions like this, maybe at a different time, you know, open to basically anything going forward. Because I think it's, I think the, the obviously the decision for the World Cup in 2030 is going to be huge. Who's going to be making that decision? How? And you, you mentioned what the the remit might be, if you like, to be able to, um, to host a, a competition like this. But essentially, we've broken every mould here. Like every single mould that we thought was a hard line in terms of hosting the World Cup has been, been broken. And it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been perfect, but it hasn't been a shambles, really. Like, the games have been okay. I'm not opposed to a, a Winter yeah, World Cup yeah. being repeated. I mean, I, I think it, it clearly it's been a nightmare for clubs and, and, and the tra traditional clubs and leagues. But surely if, with a bit more thinking and planning and a bit more time either side, it could be made to work better. Maybe that is the case. But, the, I mean, they would say that the calendar's already packed. How much more can you shift... I mean, the, the games were, we had what, about 10, 12 games squeezed into six weeks towards the end of the domestic yeah. calendar and the season began at the beginning of August. There's, there's, they would say there's not much. I, I would just, I would just say, can, can you not ex extend the domestic season, start it even earlier and, and extend it another week or two later and just to alleviate the pinch points? Mm. Well, so that sort of thing could be managed I do, I, do, I do think like Arsene Wenger's ridiculous claim that um, the teams that were more focused on political statements are the ones that slipped up in the in the first round. I do actually think that a contributing factor to some of the surprises in the group stages is the fact that teams hadn't been given an opportunity yeah. to prepare. Yeah, yeah correct. You know, uh, and, and, and now that's been good for the spectator. Yeah. It's been good for the the neutral seeing these these upsets. But I do think that has been problematic. You know, normally. England would have had two or three warm-up games. They were norm normally pretty awful matches, mm, yeah, yeah. but they get they get a chance to reform as a team and prepare properly. That just hasn't happened for this World Cup. They're straight in. The first game is like it was like that sort of first friendly that an international team gets to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the group stage has been like the warm-up phase before yeah. a normal World Cup, hasn't it? And if you've if you've started if day one's been problematic or you've had a tricky group or whatever, then well, as we've seen Germany, you just sort of tumble out, yeah. don't you? Never, yeah. never quite got their act together. Yeah. Just going back to the the, sh the shifts, the one of the it's probably already happened, but we haven't seen it yet. Is that this is going to be one of the most unique tournaments in the the, the close proximity of all the stadiums? I mean, Matt experienced Russia uh, four years ago and the travelling all around the country. Here, it takes. Uh, an hour to get from the furthest stadium to the next furthest stadium. And then you look with the tournaments coming up and the shift has already happened in that we're looking at the joint bids now. That's what they want to do going forward. Mm. The, the joint bids, that's what they are suggesting and preferring. So I think a shift has already happened. For me, I think this World Cup was the World Cup that people would basically say or do anything for money. I mean, by the way, I don't discount myself from that. So if someone's got a big offer out there, let me know. But <laughs> David Beckham... And I come with you. Exactly. Arsene Wenger, Gianni Infantino... I mean, saying just patently ridiculous things. You know, it, it, this is the World Cup of like of falseness. I mean, we all, we've all experienced it being here. I mean, if you look at any of the promotional material, 
Qatar is a glittering, shiny metropolis of a place, which is not the reality, obviously. My, my, my favorite moment was actually at the opening ceremony and anyone that's been to the Al Bite Stadium knows that it is just a desert. It's yeah. just a pancake. And a, a, there's our cleaner. Shall I get out to the door? Go ahead. Um, is, is this when you get delivered sort of donuts and, and fresh coffee? Yes, yes. Uh, it's the Ocado delivery. No, my, uh, my, my favourite moment was during the opening ceremony when they, they had this, um, what, what certainly on TV was supposed to be like a drone shot of the stadium. And there was this wonderful landscape beyond the stadium, this sort of Arabic landscape of mountains and moonlight and stars. And of course, the reality is that you step outside the Albate Stadium and it's just a wasteland. Yeah. There are no mountains in view. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was, for me, that was the ultimate attempt to try and represent something that isn't really here. And um, extraordinary to, 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 to even do that. Yeah, That's a little bit like Beijing Olympics. Sorry, the Beijing Olympics 2208 with the opening ceremony, the pitch had this fantastic firework display sort of going all the way down the main mall into the city from the, from the stadium. And it, and it just didn't happen. They'd recorded it on TV like sort of three weeks beforehand and then just tapped it on. I mean, it was just fake. My understanding of it is it's what all been about perception because again, at the, the Albite Stadium, you go for a wander before the games and they've built this kind of fan zone festival area and you walk around and I mean they're football fans they're there to watch the game and there's someone performing on stage who I've not heard of you see you're too young for Chesney yeah. Hall yeah. <laughs> yeah. Republica were at the game the other day yeah I mean, you, you see people doing um, tricks uh, skills with footballs and they're all being recorded for social media there was a there was a group of Senegal fans who were who had been taken to this seat and and told to celebrate and dance and do all this I, and I thought it was great and I was walking over and then I realised that actually this was this was for a recording. This wasn't authentic. They were then it was cut, do it again, because it was all for the for the perception of the, the person at home all around the globe, the spectator at home, to see it and think, Wow, that, that looks brilliant. But actually the experience on the ground it, it, it's the games have been good, but you can get that anywhere really. Anywhere the game should be good. The quality of the football, the competition, that's the, that's the basis of the sport. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk football before we go. The small matter of the quarterfinals at the World Cup. Don't know which games you'll be covering, but tell me what you're looking forward to. Of course, Argentina against the Netherlands, Brazil against Croatia on Friday. Saturday sees Portugal take on Morocco and England, of course, facing France. Should we just focus on England? Matt Lawson, what do you think about the Raheem Sterling uh, situation? <laughs> um, have we got I, long enough on this recording for that answer? I think it's been an unnecessary mess. And it started with false information being circulated on Sunday night. There has been an incident quite clearly at Raheem Sterling's home back in Surrey, which is distressing. If, you know, if, if his family have come back from holiday, not from holiday, from here, uh, they were out here, obviously, to visit with, with other families. And if they've returned home and there has been some form of burglary, which the police are now investigating, that is a distressing situation that is upsetting. However, on Sunday night, we were told by his people that there were armed invaders that the family were at home and this was why he'd had to fly home to be with his family, totally understandable. And we, we all reported on this horrifying ordeal that his family had been subjected to. Clearly, I think it was given as a reason to justify why he had left Qatar. And the problem that I don't think they anticipated was the fact that the next morning, Surrey police came out and said, no, 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 no. There's no reports of anyone being armed in this incident and actually the family were not at home. And that has created a situation that's raised a lot of questions and unnecessary questions. And for me, the big problem with it has been that the FA has completely failed to take control of the situation. He's their player. He's a member of a 26-man squad at a World Cup and they're the lack of information, the lack of guidance that's come from the FA. I literally saw a member of the FA communication staff virtually running away from a, a journalist on Sunday night at, at the stadium because they didn't want to be subjected to questions about what, what, what had happened to Raheem Sterling. As I say, I have sympathy for, for Raheem Sterling. I have no issue with him going home to support his family at this time. What I do have an issue is with is false information being given out. Now, there may be an explanation for that. It may have been a, a lack of communication, but no one has even, or, you know, or, or cross wires, but no one has even come out and said that's what's happened. And there's just been this vacuum in which lots of theories are being, are being put out there. And it's just been a distraction and it's a distraction for Gareth and the team. And, and my issue with it is that he's now going to be asked about it in his pre-match press conferences when he should just be focused on how to stop Mbappe and how to win a match, you know, how to win a football match. And I just think, as I say, you know, I, I have covered a lot of World Cups. I have covered a lot of England matches. 
I've rarely seen the FA look more incompetent at managing a situation during a major tournament. Might be easier to answer the questions if Raheem Sterling is on his way back, which might be as we speak. So we'll see exactly what Gareth Southgate has to say uh, a little bit later or tomorrow in his pre-match comments. Ahead of the game itself, how are we feeling as England fans? We all, we all want England to do well. There's no secret France fan here, is there? No, but I think we have to say that we're we're impartial and journalists rather than England fans. I I, I certainly oh. feel that way. I mean, I'd be celebrating if they win. That's for sure. But uh, I wish we were like the the journalists from the other countries that wore their shirts in the <laughs> in the media areas and well, and, uh, then, and then applaud their team, their, their manager when he comes in for the for the press yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, why can't we? Here. Why can't we do that? Why can't why can't we, we applaud had, Southgate into the? Uh, <laughs> we had at the at the final of the European Championships last year. We had an Italian fan who. Um, he was sat sat among us, and when when uh, Italy equalised, he actually jumped out of his seat and started to gesture to the England fans that were about the nearest ones to the press box. They were about thirty metres away, and I can't repeat on air what he was saying, but it was well, it was fu basically, and he was he was gesturing to the fans. So a couple of us told him just to sit down. You know, he had a laptop and he was working there as a journalist. And then he responded to that at the end when Italy won on penalties by actually pulling on his Italy shirt yeah. and doing the same to the journalists sat around him. He was eventually ejected by the stewards. So, yeah, I think we, we, we at the times we try to avoid such behaviour, don't we? I think but, maybe if England were to win the World Cup, I think we would drop the sort of the English froideur and, and I would applaud Southgate into a press conference if they won it. I think that would be an, a nice gesture. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're even frowning at that, Matt. You I, 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 remember, <laughs> I, I remember being uncomfortable when a colleague tried to start a round of applause after Ericsson's last game in Germany, after they'd been eliminated, and tried to give him a round of applause oh, for being eliminated. For, well, just That's for being for his for his five six, charge, yeah. for his five six years in charge, and I thought that was inappropriate. I, I think I, I would certainly congratulate Gareth if he won the World <laughs> Cup. Um, we won't tell anyone if you're caught clapping. It, it, it's 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 a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Of course, you want them to win. Um, you're pleased for them, and actually, I think I feel more supportive of this group than I have of previous groups. I they're they're likable this lot. I uh, concur with that. I think that's a good point. I yeah. think this this is a, an England team that I feel proud to be properly associated yeah. with. Yeah, they, they are a likable bunch. There are no massive egos. You know, if you I think Harry Kane sums up this this mm. group really in his in how down to earth he is, in how likable he is, in how professional he is, uh, and 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 Southgate is the master of of diplomacy and being liked by. Uh, obviously, he's he's you know he's had a few boos and jeers in the last few months, but I think again he's won people back. Um, so yeah, you do want them to do well. I think the Raheem Sterling story actually also feeds into this and and England because. He was the best player at, for England at yeah. Euro 2020. And actually, the Senegal game, he wasn't even going to start. And that tells you something about the depth that this squad has. My, my one concern, you have to find a balance. And maybe they have found it after the last two tournaments. But you have to find a balance between confidence 
and um, an arrogance. And I don't. I'm, I'm not saying they're they're leaning into the arrogant side, but there have been a few comments saying we're we're a great side. We just deserve more respect uh, for our performances. It, it, France will be by far the biggest test they'll have by far. And there are still huge question marks over the defense. The attack is the is the most impressive part. As I say, without without Sterling, what Bakaya Saka was the was one of the stars of 2021, uh, Euro 2020. And um, we, we almost take for granted what he's doing at this tournament. Yeah, yeah. What do we do then against the French? Are we are we confident? Are we arrogant? Are we the arrogant ones now? Should we be arrogant and go into that game and approach it as we've approached the previous games on the front foot, 4-3-3? I keep talking about the formation, but I do find it the most intriguing thing. Someone messaged me yesterday and said, I, I find this Carl Walker press conference a bit strange in that he's essentially saying that he's starting. And I was like, well, he is. He is starting. I mean, you wouldn't expect Harry Kane to do a press conference and not make out that he was starting. Carl Walker is integral to this team. He's starting. So him talking about how he's going to deal with Mbappe is obvious. The question is, is he going to be doing it on his own or is Kieran Trippier or Trent Alexander-Arnold going to be helping him out? And I think, are we thinking about that a little bit too much? Because a lot of people say, oh, their midfield's not that great, Rabiot and Shuameni. And you're sort of like, well, they've been very good in this tournament. They're a lot better at, at keeping the ball than we are. They're a lot more calm in possession. I agree with you totally. It's going to be a huge, huge test. But maybe we're, we're guilty of thinking too much about Mbappe's talents in terms of how we win this game. Personally, I would not want to see him change the formation because the front six unit is working so well. Henderson's reintroduction, that midfield three, I don't think you can tamper with that. But what I do think will happen is that when France are in possession, it will fall upon Saka and perhaps even Henderson to support Walker. And I think that's what will happen. You know, they are both, uh, they've both got great engines. As a, you know, they're both great athletes. And I don't see why um, and, and, you know, and Henderson has defensive instincts. He's a terrific footballer, but he is not afraid to get stuck in, try and win the ball. You know, I think the first few seconds against Senegal, it was Henderson who, who charged in and won possession. And I just think that's the way they have to work, that there has to be a, a doubling up on Mbappe. But it's done in a way that doesn't mean that you've got to change the formation because I think it's it's working too well. And it, it's it's what makes England dangerous at this tournament. And I don't think um, Gareth and Steve Holland can, can mess with that too much. I liked what um, Walker said yesterday about them having to worry about us. There's, there's this natural inclination to start looking at Mbappe and... Uh, Griezmann and Giroud and and thinking what, what I said before about this being the biggest test of England's credentials at this World Cup and all of that is absolutely true but there's that fine line between fear and confidence and I liked the fact Walker said they've got to worry about Harry Kane's ability in front of goal they've got to worry about Jude Bellingham who has been the absolute superstar of this this tournament and the moment that he's really really emerging out here and and I think he'll be he'll be the player we remember this tournament for in in an England shirt 
one of the things I thought Walker said really interesting about the formation, it doesn't really matter, he said. It doesn't really matter to what, what we do. I think it does to an element. Uh, I think the the midfield three that Matt referred to, and, and we're speaking Thursday morning, the day after Declan Rice missed England training uh, due to illness. So we, we will find out today whether he's trained or whether he's going to train tomorrow. And I, actually, I think that is going to be huge for England because of the balance that they have. And his role in this team has been so important, but also selfless because he sees himself as having the ability to do what Bellingham's done, to to have the ability to do what Henderson's done. But actually he's been that insurance that screen in front of the defence that allows Bellingham to get forward and, and show that quality he has going through. The goal that we saw Henderson and Henderson score, that Bellingham set up, I don't think that happens if you don't have Rice in the team. Mm-hmm. So he will be, if he isn't fit and 100%, I think that will be a really significant blow. One of the most significant blows England could Yeah, have. I mean, if Declan Rice doesn't make it, it's going to be five at the back. It's going to be Henderson and and Bellingham in the midfield, it will change. It will certainly change the system, I think. Right. And just one of the things that I find interesting about this whole Mbappe debate, and I know it's been slightly packaged this way because Carl Walker happened to be doing the the media for England yesterday, is is there's this feeling that that obviously England have a have a plan, and and Carl Walker's England's fastest defender, and he's done well against um, Mbappe um, in their Champions League games. But I just think surely the the, the French will have some kind of tactical answer to this themselves, and. Uh, Maybe they'll want to see if they can get Mbappe running against someone else instead of Carl Walker and playing him not coming in from the left as he always as he has done at this World Cup and maybe maybe running a bit more centrally at someone like Harry Maguire. I mean that's what I would be doing. I've I've not watched enough of PSG to to um, be sure on this, but the the interesting thing was that Walker yesterday said. I've never played against Mbappe. When we played against PSG, I had Neymar on my side. And so whether that is part of it or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but but get him out on the right-hand side, it may be more beneficial to them. Mbappe makes the choice. I think it's up to him. <laughs> That's correct. He's not getting moved unless he says he's getting moved. Even True. Didier Deschamps can't do anything about that, having won it as a player and a coach already, because I think he's, I think we've seen him really emerge in terms of that Messi, Ronaldo type uh, influence on his teams. Now, Kylian Mbappe is able to conduct uh, how things might go. I think you'll fancy a little run out against Carl Walker and if it doesn't go well he'll probably tell Usman Dembele let me have a go on the right for a bit and he'll have a go at Luke Shaw but um, yeah, it might pull down to him do we do we, do we feel confident that England will get a result? Um, not overly I think they've got a chance but I do think they are the underdogs I, th- I think France you know look we're talking about him he's the best player in the world right now Mbappe he looked absolutely deadly the other night and um, that you know, that is going to be the main threat and the main challenge. Um, and I do think that, put it this way, if England beat France, then I think they have got a really good chance in this tournament. But I, I think it will be the hardest game they have at this tournament. Yeah, I agree. But bizarrely, watching France, I, I think you're absolutely right in that they have, he has it, he has turned into their Messi, their Ronaldo. And I don't think that's actually a good thing for the France no. team because watching them, I don't think it's conducive to a team effort where they essentially give him the ball 
and hope. <laughs> and it, hope. But it also doesn't suit, I guess, the pattern that we've seen from France and French football for right. a long, long time. Right. In that, you know, if you have that one figure who says it's all about me, usually the rest of the squad doesn't like that person or doesn't get along with that person. That usually affects their results. I mean, the last person that was Zinedine Zidane, I think, in, in terms of French football, who just about got away with it. But I know that his, a lot of his teammates were unhappy yeah. when he returned for France and said, I, I, if I come back, I need to be captain. You know, and it was, I think it was Patrick Vieira at the time. You know, it's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. but there you go. I don't think they can, they can maybe have another generation. But, but like this that. is also a, a re this is a weakened France team. And it, and it is why all the focus is on Mbappe because it's a tournament where they, you, you look back at 2018, they haven't got, Benzema, they haven't got Kante, they haven't got Pogba. That's like England missing Sterling, Bellingham and Rice. I'm, I'm working on a, on a piece along these sort of lines for our Saturday paper. So our people who listen to this will be excited about this now, won't they? Um, <laughs> Check but, it out right but, now. But been talking to um, some of the French journalists about this very thing. What, my question being, what, what would happen if Benzema was here? I mean, he is the Ballon d'Or. So he is, you know, in inverted commas, the best player in the world at the moment. And, and and the consensus is, well, Benzema would play instead of Giroud, yeah. um, but we think we're a better team without him because of the, the the sort of power play politics around it. What's happened is that Giroud plays second fiddle mm. to Mbappe, and Mbappe play, leading the orchestra has just been allowed to grow into this sort of superstar, and they feel that they're, they're, they're better to have that, Whereas, which is contrary to what you were saying, which is they're not so much a team anymore. Either they're, they're like a one-man vehicle, but how can, we, how can we get our bus driver to sort of you know, tear another hole in, in the defence? Mm. It's going to be an intriguing game. You know I love a prediction, Tom Roddy. I am going to go... England win, one nil. Two one to France in normal time. Interesting, Matt Lawton. Five nil England. Do it. No, I, <laughs> I, 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 I tend to agree with Slotty. Uh, as I say, I'll be delighted if England get through, because it, this is a, this is a super group of players, and there's loads of talent, particularly going forward. But I think two one France. It's going to be a big one. Gentlemen, thank you. Probably the biggest game in the World Cup so far. Uh, we will, of course, react to Friday's games uh, next time we're together and we will look ahead to that game. So I'll save my prediction for the next podcast. But thank you, gentlemen. Thank you all for listening from here in Doha. Uh, it's goodbye. But make sure you download the Times app or pick up a paper. Loads of great writing being done right now uh, from this tournament. And of course, uh, you can check us out at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game, as I always tell you. And we will see you tomorrow. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 